Hey, it's Ed. Before we get started, I've got three brand new podcast supporters that I want to thank. James Decker, Heather Thompson, and Elijah Myrick. These three folks just signed up to support the podcast, and I really, really, really appreciate it. The list of supporters is on the page mountainandprairie.com slash support, and it continues to get longer and longer, and I can't thank you enough for that. Second thing, the Bozeman event uh, continues to sell. We're almost at half the tickets sold, and we're about two and a half months out. So um, check it out. Go to mountainandprairie.com slash Bozeman to learn more about that. But thanks a lot for listening. Hope everybody's doing well. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Mike Phillips. Mike is the director of the Turner Endangered Species Fund, an organization that he co-founded in 1997 with Ted Turner. Mike is also a Montana state senator representing District 31, which encompasses parts of his hometown of Bozeman and the surrounding area. In his work as an ecologist, Mike has spent much of his career studying and implementing the reintroduction of wolves throughout the United States. And in both science and politics, he's never shied away from taking vocal leadership roles involving a wide range of important issues in southwest Montana and beyond. Mike is very well known for his work with gray wolves in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and also for his efforts to reintroduce the species into western Colorado. But as you'll hear in our conversation, wolves are just a small part of his work. His overarching interest is the persistence of many imperiled species, with a special emphasis on private land's role in the recovery efforts. Whether considering the fate of monarch butterflies, cutthroat trout, or gray wolves, Mike's approach is always the same an action-oriented, science-backed strategy towards conserving biological diversity. No matter where you stand on the issue of gray wolf reintroduction, I encourage you to give this conversation with Mike a very close listen. If you're like me, you'll be struck not only by his passion for ecology, but by his deep reliance on non-emotional, quantitative scientific data. You'll also notice his insatiable curiosity and his willingness to change his mind when presented with compelling new information. And finally, I think you'll be impressed by his ability to talk about controversial topics such as wolves or politics in a respectful, considered tone that welcomes conversation and input from all sides of the issues. I can't thank Mike enough for taking the time out of his busy schedule to chat. This is a very important conversation that will make you think, and Mike's enthusiasm will likely motivate you to dedicate more of your time to a cause that you find important. Thanks a lot for listening. So maybe the best way to start is, could you just talk a bit about the Turner Endangered Species Fund, maybe specifically how it got started and what your role is with the organization? Sure, sure, Ed. Thank you. Uh, The Turner Endangered Species Fund grew out of 18 months of Ted Turner and I courting. Mm -hmm. Back in 1995, when I was leading the effort to restore gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park, Ted and 
Jane Fonda, his wife at the time, like many uh, people of note, came to the park to see what all the fuss was about with the Yellowstone Wolf Restoration Project. And Ted and I and Jane uh, spoke about many things that day, and and uh, and and you know the day came and went. It was a delightful day, and and you know off they went. And I I never expected uh, anything would would come from it. And and about two weeks later, I was at home, uh, and the phone rang as was typical when the Wolf Project was so demanding. Mm-hmm. And I answered it rather rudely. Hello, and <laughs> there was a woman on the line, and she said, "Is this Mike?" I said, "Yeah, this is Mike." And of course, the kids are yelling in my ear. And, and she said, Mike Phillips. I said, yeah, this is Mike. And she said, oh, this is Jane Fonda. I said, oh, Jane. <laughs> it's fun to hi, you know. And, and so we chatted. And she said, you know, we were so impressed with our tour. We were hoping that you would spend time with Peter Behuth, uh, the president of the Turner Foundation. And I've got Peter here. And we had talked to Peter. And, and so Peter got on the phone. And we set up a time for Peter to come to the Wolf Project. And and, uh, and fine. And I said, when I was done with Mr. Behuth, I said, Pete, can you put... Miss Fonda back on the phone. And I said, Jane, thank you. I, I never thought that you guys would be able to engage and never thought that you could engage so quickly. And and she said, honestly, as she said, Mike, ask and ye shall receive. <laughs> and I thought, well, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, fair enough. And and so, you know, Pete came and went and Bo Turner came with him and we had a great time. And about two weeks after that, I was in my office and the phone rang and some guy was yelling at me. I said, Mike, I said, yeah, this is Mike. I said, this is Ted. I said, oh, Ted, how you doing, Ted? And he invited me to the Fly and Bee Ranch, a nice property he owns outside Bozeman. And he said, I want you to leave the Department of Interior and, and let's, let's build a wolf restoration project at my Fermejo Park Ranch in northern New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, Ted, I appreciate that opportunity. I'll go take a look at your ranch, but I, I suspect it, it's not going to be nearly big enough to do much. Uh, at the time, Ted was also recruiting Mike Finley, who was then the superintendent of Yellowstone Park. He wanted Mike to leave the park. Mm-hmm. The two Mikes were going to leave the park, go to Vermejo. Finley would be the manager of Vermejo, and I would lead the Wolf Restoration Project. So Mike and I went down there with our wives and concluded exactly uh, what I thought, and that is it was too small. So I called Ted and said, Ted, thank you. The reconnaissance trip was great for me. It was a beautiful piece of ground at nearly a thousand square miles. It's a big ranch and, you know, good on you, uh, but it's really entirely too small for a wolf project. It might someday be an important piece of a much, much bigger puzzle, largely defined by large tracts of federal public lands. But mm-hmm. thank you. Good luck. And if you try to go forward, I'd be honored to advise that I, I'm not going to leave Yellowstone and and he said, okay. And I said, no, but no, 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 wait, wait, Ted, don't do it. I have another idea. I said, Ted, if you would be interested in uh, building out a significant effort that would look to restore a host of imperiled species, not just gray wolves, but imperiled plants, birds, fishes, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, then maybe we can find common ground. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would be willing to leave Interior. And he said, great, thanks, pal, write it up. <laughs> so I took the next few months, you know, and I wrote up what was originally known as the NOAA Project. Okay. And the NOAA Project aimed to illustrate that strategically placed tracts of private land, properly supported by essential private assets, uh, emotional support, fiscal support, that private arcs 
could be a godsend in terms of saving creation because I knew back in the day, this is nearly 25 years ago now, that the extinction crisis was a, a magnificent, massive problem and growing ever more so by the day. So I proposed to Ted the NOAA project. And we went back and forth over a period of about a year. He was always excited by it. The whole notion of helping to save nature struck a deep chord with Ted. Mm -hmm. The NOAA project became the Turner Endangered Species Fund and the Turner Biodiversity Divisions, the two sibling organizations that collectively fly under the Turner banner to make the world a more secure place for imperiled species. We have been operational on a daily basis for the last 22 years. Since inception, we have stood as the largest private effort in the world to redress the extinction crisis through reintroduction projects involving imperiled plants, birds, fishes, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, and one invertebrate. That's um, a, a wonderful summary, and and I you know I'd read bits and pieces of that, but I'd not had it all put together for me like that. And any any great stories about Ted Turner, I always want to hear. So thank you for that. Um, just to back it up a bit, where did your fascination with wolves come come in? Because it seems like most of your career has been involved in with wolves in one way or the other. And from my understanding, you're, you didn't grow up in the Rocky Mountains. So how did that develop? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I would not consider myself a wolf biologist. I would consider myself a restoration ecologist. I, I, I'm, I'm really no more fascinated by gray wolves than any number of other uh, members of any natural setting. Mm -hmm. My graduate work, uh, considered grizzly bears, for example. I, I, I didn't do postgraduate studies on or graduate studies on gray wolves. I, I did gray wolf research in my own while I grad graduate student, but my uh, my graduate work specifically concerned grizzly bear behavior and ecology in anticipation of oil and gas development in Arctic in the Arctic por uh, portion of Alaska. Uh, I'm really uh, mostly fascinated, and this is one reason why I left the park to launch, the, to co-found with Ted the Turner Endangered Species Fund, I'm mostly fascinated by issues of rareness. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I'm fascinated by and motivated by the extinction crisis. Now, for most of my career, gray wolves have figured prominently in that fascination because they are an imperiled species in many parts of the world. They re remain so. Uh, they have been a, a, a fantastic vehicle, a fantastic lens for illuminating other opportunities for uh, making the world a more secure place for all of non-human life. I indeed, the reason that I recognize the importance of private land, specifically large tracts of private land for arresting the extinction crisis, that came to me because of two wolves, a little wolf in North Carolina uh, known as uh, known as, as 340, little wolf known as 340, mm -hmm. uh, and then a black gray wolf out of Yellowstone known as number six. And both of those animals, when you walk through their lives, uh, made clear that even in the presence of large tracts of federal public lands, private lands could really matter to the recovery of imperiled species. It was those two wolves that, that gave me sufficient rationale to propose to Ted now, what became the Turner Endangered Species Fund? It was the Red Wolf program that first introduced my work to Ted. Ted had been watching my work uh, going back into the late 1980s when we began the work with Red Wolves in 
at the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge in northeastern North Carolina. That was back in 1986, 1987. Mm-hmm. Ted and I didn't come together until uh, uh, 1997. Uh, uh, so he had an eye on things. His heart is driven by many of the same things that, that drives me forward, too. Uh, so I was, it was never really that I was attracted by, by gray wolves. Uh, so much as I was attracted by the notion of restoration ecology. It just so happened, though, that my first real job, uh, uh, sporting an undergraduate degree in ecology, ethology, and evolution from the University of Illinois, my first real job was working with Dave Meach, uh, the pioneering wolf researcher, uh, working on his wolf prey study in the Superior National Forest and Boundary Waters canoe area of northeastern Minnesota. And I, I became close to Dave. Dave is my mentor. Okay. And, and one thing led to another. And, and Dave, uh, uh, I had done good work uh, uh, with grizzly bears in Alaska and dingoes and red foxes in Australia when the opportunity arose for someone to lead the Red Wolf Restoration Project back in 1985 and 1986. Uh, Dave was asked who should lead that effort. Uh, and Dave said without hesitation, Mike Phillips. And and then one thing led to another. But but Ed, I have led the Turner Endangered Species Fund now for the past 22 years. We work on a raft of species in addition to uh, being very involved in wolf recovery across the Rocky Mountain West. So uh, I hold gray wolves in great regard, but I hold uh, cottontail rabbits in great regard. Um, well, I want to dig into the Wolf Wolf Project, is particularly what you guys are working on in Colorado, because I think it's so interesting. But before we do that, can you just give us an example of maybe a, a success story that you've had and that the Turner Endangered Species Fund has had in something outside of wolves? Oh, sure. And, and because we are small and will always be small, yeah, we recognize we have to be audacious and smart if we're going to consistently punch above our weight. Sure. And 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 we we want to punch above our weight. So here's a great example. It has to do with the bolson tortoise. The bolson tortoise is the largest reptile in North America. Uh, they're big. You know, one of our animals is named Gertie. If you've got Gertie in your hands, you know it. She weighs, oh, gee was I bet Gertie weighs 40 pounds. Oh, wow. Uh, the bolson is the closest relative in North America to the gopher tortoise of the southeastern United States. Uh, the bolson tortoise was not known to science before the late 1950s. Uh, the Bolson tortoise is represented in the wild by only one, a very insecure population in the, uh, in what's called the Bolson de Mapami, a UN biosphere reserve in, in, in Mexico. Okay. Uh, we began focusing on the Bolson tortoise back in, back in 2007. Uh, it, it, uh, it is a wildly successful program on our part. Uh, the, the best example I can give you of the success is a little tortoise known as 09DW1. When we first met 09DW1, it might have been, oh, gee whiz, uh, two inches long and an inch and a half wide. He was just a little bitty guy. Uh, 09DW1, his name stands for specifics. 09 stands for 2009. And DW stands for deep well. That's where we found, found him. And one well, number one stands for number one. 09DW1 was the first bolson tortoise born in the wild in the continental United States in 15,000 years. Wow. The, the bolson is a Pleistocene relic. Now, 
the bull sound was a common feature of the southwestern United States 15, 20, 30,000 years ago until it was overexploited by Aboriginal peoples. Uh, it's good to eat, so they would catch it and kill it and eat it. Uh, uh, other uh, changes also did not help the Bolson landscape changes as the Southwest became more humanized. Uh, it has been in place in the wild in Mexico only for thousands of years. Uh, we we effectively, with the Bolson tortoise, are launching a Pleistocene rewilding project, and it serves to illustrate the importance that sometimes a restoration ecologist can justify using deep time, using a very old clock to help guide and answer the question, restore to what? Sometimes you don't refer to historical conditions. Sometimes you restore to prehistorical conditions. We are the only game in town for the bull on tortoise. It is a fantastic project that will result in the establishment of wild populations at at least two locations in New Mexico, if not three, and ultimately a fourth location in Texas where we're targeting Big Bend National Park. The Bolson tortoise is a fantastic project, has nothing to do with gray wolves. That's great. And, and I'll put links to all this on the webpage for this podcast. So people, because you guys have a wonderful website yeah. with, with great info. So people need to go on there and dig around because there's, there's so much more going on than wolves. Although I definitely want to talk about wolves and specifically here in Colorado. Can you talk about some of your work and some of the advising work you've been doing with the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project and kind of your, your goals and thoughts on the needs for a wolf population here in Colorado? It, it, it's always been obvious to many of us that Western Colorado is a mother load of opportunity for, for wolf recovery. It's a mother load because the pattern of land ownership is so very uh, conducive to, to wide ranging gray wolves. Western Colorado is defined by over 17 million acres of federal public lands across which gray wolves would receive reasonable consideration. On top of that, Western Colorado is graced with abundant numbers of deer and elk, uh, and, and in areas where people don't kill gray wolves, and let's assume for a moment that Coloradans don't needlessly kill gray wolves, uh, it's the abundance of food that decides, that determines how robust and vigorous and viable a wolf population is. To put Western Colorado into a more specific context, the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem uh, in, uh, encompasses maybe 15 million acres of federal public lands. That, that's a big base of federal public lands. It supports about 250,000 deer and elk. And now, after the restoration work that began in Yellowstone so many years ago, it supports about 500 gray wolves, it, it being the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. It's a reasonable analog for imagining what Western Colorado could be like. Mm -hmm. Well, gee whiz, Western Colorado has more federal public lands than the greater Yellowstone. And whereas the GYE, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, supports about 250,000 deer and elk, after, in Western Colorado, and after, and these are the states on survey data, from 2004 to 2015, I haven't looked at 16, 17, and 18 yet, but I'm sure the trend line is still quite persistent. Uh, after hunters in Western Colorado have taken, have killed an average of 80,000 deer and elk, after that, there remain in Western Colorado 700,000 wow. deer and elk. Three, uh, at least three times the prey populations in Western Colorado than you see in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So, so we know from a uh, land ownership perspective, we know from a prey perspective, 
Western Colorado is this motherload of opportunity. We also know that the socio-political sensibilities of Coloradans very different than Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. Different, I suppose, from Utah. Different again yet from Arizona. Uh, different from New Mexico. Even uh, Coloradans seem to have a greater capacity than any of those other states to accommodate wild and self-willed nature. And, and gray wolves are all about wild and self-willed nature. So I would have you believe not only does the land uh, ownership patterns favor wolves, the prey populations favor wolf, but also the socio-political sensibilities of Coloradans. It is this great, wonderful opportunity that serves, uh, if properly uh, taken advantage of, if gray wolves are restored to western Colorado, that wolf population would serve as the archstone uh, connecting uh, gray wolves from the high Arctic to the Mexican border. In, in other words, when you look at wolf distributions in North America, it's continuous from uh, about uh, Yellowstone Park uh, north all the way into northern Canada, an unbroken population of, of gray wolves that go as far north as the Arctic. And then and then there's this gap. There's this gap from northwestern Wyoming to, uh, well, gee, southwestern New Mexico. Well, the gap, Ed, is mostly uh, western Colorado. Mm-hmm. If you fill that gap with a viable population, that will be the last piece, the archstone, if you will, connecting wolves from the high Arctic to the Mexican border. There is no other place in the world where you can imagine the restoration of a much maligned, misunderstood, large, imperiled carnivore across such a sweeping continental landscape. That is, in my mind, quite compelling, especially as the world becomes increasingly humanized with each passing day. That's the significance of Western Colorado. Now, as it turns out, as it turns out, for years and years and years, going back to 1995 and 1996, mm-hmm. now, uh, Team Turner has been working to draw attention to the the uh, the, the appropriateness of Western Colorado. And and uh, up until 2013, I was convinced that the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, operating under their mandated duties under the Federal Endangered Species Act, would eventually show up, as they did in the Great Lakes states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, as they did in the northern Rocky Mountains, Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. They would show up in western Colorado, and they would they would be the agents of change operating under their authorities under the Endangered Species Act, and they would restore gray wolves through reintroductions. In 2013, it became apparent to me that the federal government was never going to come to western Colorado. I think the law mandates that they do that, but it's very hard to insist that the United States Fish and Wildlife Service do anything, mm-hmm. they have all kinds of uh, opportunity to argue otherwise, and that's what they have effectively done. So it struck me in 13 that, that there needed to be an effort uh, that would draw attention to this rich opportunity that is Western Colorado, uh, to draw attention to that uh, for Coloradans. And so we gave rise to the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project as an educational effort to help Coloradans embrace an honest portrayal of the gray wolf Uh, because i believe that an honest portrayal of the gray wolf prompts uh, people to conclude that coexisting with the species is a relatively straightforward affair that requires only a modicum of accommodation Uh, that conclusion of course advances restoration Uh, ed there's only one thing that's ever gotten in the way of wolf recovery Mm -hmm. and that's the mythical wolf people have this odd sense of the gray wolf, that it's this mythical beast that floats two inches above the ground, 
that's able to exercise its predatory will on a whim mm-hmm. and therefore creates this wake of death and destruction everywhere it goes. Well, the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Unfortunately, the myth is as strong as it is wrong. Yep. The Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, since well, 2016, 2017, has been working hard to help Coloradans understand that the mythical wolf is not the real wolf. One question, it's, it's not a hardball question for you, because you, you're in this world all day long, and you're in the political world, so you're used to... <laughs> used to some hard questions, but my, you know, my background before I started doing conservation full time was in ranch brokerage. And so I dealt a lot with ranchers all over and, you know, some, some ranchers that, that maybe didn't seem to be all that, all that deep thinking on things. And then others that, that do. And one family's coming to mind on the Western slope that they're, they're committed conservationists and they've got their property under a conservation easement. They're, they're wonderful stewards of the land, um, wonderful, um, funders of conservation. But in talking with them, they are very anti-wolf. And it's interesting because, you know, when you, when I'm listening to you, it's, you know, you've got data, you've got a very clear, non-emotional explanation. And then you talk with them and it's kind of the same thing. And it's not like they're, um, they're, they're not, you know, kind of out there in their thinking. They're, they're very reasoned people, but they're anti-wolf. And it seems to me, and I could be reading it wrong, this is strictly an economic um, aspect. You know, they think that it will uh, reduce the margins in their cattle business. So what do you, you know, when you're talking to somebody like that, assuming they're smart, they, they're curious, they're, they're somewhat open-minded, but they have an argument like that, it's going to mess up my business. What, how, do you, how do you talk to them about that? Well, uh, first and foremost, there's very little logic to how people view the gray wolf. Mm-hmm. On, on both sides of the equation, some would have you believe the wolf is this angelic ecological engineer that can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. And then others would have you believe it's the devil incarnate. <laughs> Neither position is accurate. Uh, both celebrate the myth. Both are wrong. Uh, the real wolf is just another important piece of a natural puzzle. I would have you believe uh, a relatively important piece uh, because of its lifestyle. The gray wolf is an obligate carnivore. Uh, obligate carnivore is just a fancy way of saying gray wolves pretty much have to kill stuff to survive. That yep. doesn't mean that gray wolf's going to walk by a carcass. No self-respecting gray wolf would ever walk by a free meal. But for the most part, they mostly live by taking live prey. So hold that thought, Ed. Let's assume for a moment. Let's assume for a moment that that uh, the most powerful force in the universe is life. Well, that seems reasonable. It's the most powerful force. Life is the most powerful force in the universe. Conversely, if you are an agent of death, you have to be really important too. Mm-hmm. All of the life that we see around us, the fantastic forms that we see around us, so well adapted to local challenges, are a function of death. Evolution drives by death. Uh, differential reproductive success, which is all Darwinian fitness, says if you have a trait, Ed, that gives your offspring a little bit of an advantage, and they can pass that advantage to their offspring, then that trait's going to become fixed. That's the whole notion of differential reproductive success. Well, that means that your offspring and your great offspring and your great-great offspring are surviving better. 
life as we see it around us is shaped by death. If you are an obligate carnivore, you have to matter. Mm-hmm. So gray wolves are this important player across this stage of nature. Now, here's what I would say to your friends in, in the ranching business. Your concerns are based on what? You mentioned that they're good thinkers, that they, 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 they're the good stewards, they pay attention. I would say, you're, what, what data are you paying attention to that would lead you to believe that gray wolves are going to blow up your business model? Mm-hmm. There, there are no data that would support that claim. You know, Ed, in the, in, let's just take western Montana. My home state is another really good analog for imagining what western Colorado might look like. Western Montana supports, oh, gee whiz, uh, 2 million head of cattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it supports, oh, 900 gray wolves. The, the, the western third of Montana, maybe I'm a little heavy on the livestock. Let's say it supports 1.5 million head of livestock and 900 gray wolves in the western 30% of Montana. On average, on average, gray wolves will kill 50 head of cattle. Mm-hmm. Out of 1.5 million. Yeah. 50. 50. When you run the numbers, we could, we could say that 99.96% of cattle in western Montana are never affected by wolf depredations. 99.96, or to flip it, 0.04% are involved in depredations. Gray wolf depredations on livestock do not represent a threat to the livestock industry. They simply don't because they are so very, very uncommon. Now, if you're the rancher that has lost those 50 head of cattle, let's just assume it's all one ranch, all the depredations take place, you lost 50 head of cattle, that's a problem. Or spread the problem more widely, and you're just one of a handful of ranchers that suffers a loss of two or three head of cattle, or just one head of cattle, that's still a problem. I get that. I get that. But you know what, Ed? It is the truth that that we have very good tools at the ready for responding to conflicts between wolves and livestock to end those conflicts. And we've got very good tools at the ready for preventing conflicts from ever arising in the first place. I would say to your friends, you know what? We can put a woman on the moon and bring her back better than before. We can take your heart out of your chest and put it back better than before. We can do a lot of wonderful things. I promise you, folks, we can learn to coexist with the gray wolf. To do that, you have got to set aside the myth that wolves are a threat to, to, to the livestock industry is crazy. The notion that wolves are a threat to individual ranchers in a manner that cannot be resolved is absolutely crazy. Those are the facts. Now, you know what, Ed? It is very difficult, especially with older white men. And I can pick at old white guys because that's my tribe. I'm an old white guy. I can pick at that tribe. I'll be there we soon. Are we are stubborn, and we are not inclined to give up our, our, our minds in the presence of good information. You know, I have learned, because I've spent as much time over the last nearly 20 years now, thinking about political science as conservation science, you know what older white men like me do in the presence of good information? We don't change our mind. We get more stubborn. Mm-hmm. So it's not the wolf's fault that we can't change our mind. Now, I would also add to your friends that are ranching in what sounds like a very thoughtful way. Yes. Good on them. 
I believe in ranches. I'd rather have ranches than condos. Sure. But I would also say to them, I'd say, where are you ranching? Where are you ranching? Well, a lot of these ranchers use federal public lands. Oh, really? So you're using federal public lands. Huh, that's interesting. So you're relying on federal public lands to help promote your business. That, that's good. That's great. You know, we, we all believe in that. American citizens believe in that. That's why. That's why we subsidize. We heavily subsidize grazing on federal public lands. And we, we, that subsidy, Ed, comes in the form of a reduced cost. We know across the board on grazing lands of the Rocky Mountain West, the United States Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management charge a fraction of what that grass is really worth. And, and the American people have said, oh, that's, that's, that's okay. That's okay. We'll help carry the water because we want ranchers on those landscapes because properly managed ranches uh, uh, generate so many other benefits. Got it. I'm all in on that. Mm-hmm. But I can say, oh, wait a minute. We're subsidizing your use of public grass, and now you, you want us to say that public landscape can't support gray wolves? On top of the subsidy that we've already given you, you're telling us that certain species have no place on federal public lands. And they typically look at me and I say, so here's my point, folks. I have said for decades I support very liberal management of gray wolves on private land. If a gray wolf is on private land causing problems, you should be able to get involved right away and take care of the problem. In contrast, I support very conservative management on public lands. Because you know what? They're public lands. Mm-hmm. And the public, the public has said repeatedly, we want our public lands used for a variety of purposes, including wildlife conservation, including species that are imperiled, like the gray wolf. Now, typically, when I walk through that kind of explanation, I'm making no friends, making no friends. But the fact is, I haven't drifted one inch from the truth. It is true we subsidize. It is true they're federal public lands. It is true the American people stand steady behind wildlife conservation on federal public lands, even tough species like gray wolves. It is true that it's the atypical wolf that depredates on livestock. I've not drifted one inch from the truth. In contrast, folks that tend to stand in opposition will, will, uh, will inflate. They'll misinform. Sometimes they will outright lie. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Now, I suspect your friends wouldn't be the least bit enamored with me, but nonetheless, <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, I got two two follow-up questions on that. The first is, where, you know, you're in a in one of the most conflict-centric topics in the West. I mean, I can't think of many more than the the carnivore human conflict. And I've had a lot a lot of people on here who are experts in it. You know, Bryce Andrews, who's written two books about it. Uh, Dan Flores. I had some people from the Tom Minor Basin in your neck of the woods. Where where did this uh, your ability to not shy from conflict come from? Have you always been like that? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I, I think conflict is essential. Like the death thing, I guess. Well, it's kind of like a Christmas tree. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, we had the tree stand that you'd screw in from one side and then you have to screw in from the other side and then screw in from the other side. And if you don't get pressure from all sides just right, the tree is crooked. I don't want a crooked Christmas tree. I'm not bothered by tension. I'm not bothered by uh, conflict. 
if it's if if people that are willing to engage do so with a with a good heart and, and an open mind and a willingness to change their mind when change is called for. Now, I've spent 14 years in the Montana legislature, and I'll tell you what, uh, I have often uh, blinked and wondered why is it that I can't get colleagues to recognize the need to change their mind. And they have done some things, Ed, that I, I just couldn't cotton to. Uh, they reached a certain point this session where I made quietly a decision that I found profound, uh, and that was I could no longer pray with them. In, in the Montana legislature, every session and, and each day, whether it was when I was in the House or when I spent most of my time in the Montana Senate, we would begin a daily session with a prayer, mm-hmm. typically a Christian prayer, but, but a prayer. And I would stand quietly and, and respectfully, and I would listen. And over the years, I began to wonder if anybody was really listening, especially those folks, mostly old white fellows, colleagues of mine, that, that wanted to pray. And I thought, well, okay, I'm not sure they're listening because their votes sure don't suggest they are, but that's all right. That's just my interpretation. But this last legislative session, I brought a bill. I brought a simple bill. And the bill said, uh, you cannot kill coyotes in the most inhumane of ways. You can still hunt them a lot. You can still kill them a lot. I wasn't speaking to how many coyotes could be killed, but I was speaking how they could be killed because in the Rocky Mountain West, Sometimes what people will do is they'll get on their snowmobile and they'll, they'll, they'll get a coyote on the run across a big snowfield, and they'll push that coyote to the point where it can't run and it lays there exhausted. It can't get up and run anymore. Ed, it can't move. And then they'll take that snowmobile and they'll kill it by running it over repeatedly. Mm. And so I said to my colleagues in the Montana Senate, I said, you know what? That's not the Montana way. You can still hunt coyotes on your snowmobile. You can still run them, but at the point at which the coyote has got nothing left, you have to kill it in a more humane way. You have to shoot it, hit it in the head with a ball bat, something that puts it out of its misery quickly. Yep. And I didn't even get that bill out of committee. Unbelievable. And so I said to my colleagues in the full Senate, I said, my bill is stuck in the committee. So I I made a motion in the full Senate, and I said, let's at least have this discussion amongst all Amongst all 50 of us, this is an issue that deserves our attention. I even said to the full Senate, I said, if you knew of a 10-year-old boy in your neighborhood that was running the local cats over with his bicycle, you'd be troubled for that boy. You'd be, you'd be worried that there's something wrong with that boy, that that boy needs help. Mm-hmm. And yet this is fundamentally no different. I had talked to my Republican colleagues, several of them, friends of mine, before I made the motion, said, I need your help. Let's at least get this bill so we can talk about it. I, I'm not lobbying you to vote with me yet. I'm just saying, let's at least have this discussion. Uh, they, they wouldn't even help me there. And from that day forward, it was about two thirds of the way through our session. I could no longer pray with them. And so each day we would begin, I'd step out into the ante room and I would stand quietly by myself uh, glancing at the front page of the paper or looking at my phone. And as soon as the prayer would end and we would say Pledge of Allegiance, I'd step back in the chamber and, and pledge allegiance to our great flag. Uh, I don't know why people can't change their minds, but I, I would say that the friends that you mentioned, their expectation of what gray wolves would mean will never be realized. Let's talk a little bit about your political career because 
you know, it's not like you, you were just kind of sitting around without much to do. I mean, you had these massive, huge goals and making all this great progress. And then you decide to double down and get into politics as well. <laughs> and so what, what drove you to, to decide to dive in that way? What, was there a specific event or was it just kind of a, something that had been building up over time? I had been interested in uh, electoral politics for some time because I believe politics is the greatest collective activity the world has ever seen. It's the way that we go forward together. Uh, and I grew tired, and I grew tired of the view from the cheap seats. Mm-hmm. And the cheap seats were, you know, my living room chair looking at the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, asking myself, my Lord, how can they do that? And I'm smart enough to realize that you can't answer that question unless you're sitting at the decision-making table, slogging through the due diligence to reach a decision. And so I said to Ted, I said to Ted, uh, give me enough rope to hang myself, Ted. I, I, I think I can help advance environmental and social justice as a as an elected official, I can still serve as your executive director for the Turner Endangered Species Fund. At least give me a shot. At least give me enough rope to hang myself. And he said, you bet. He was my first contributor. Mm. Uh, he recognized the importance of politics in this country. It is truly one of our great collective efforts. People think ill of politics and politicians. I don't know why. They should think ill of politicians that don't serve honestly and fairly with a good heart. That's just a bum. And we should all think poorly of bums. But the idea of trying to contribute to your community by rising up and saying, I'll do a little more than my fair share, that's the essence of representative democracy. We all say, we're not going to go do that. We're going to cast a vote so you can go do that on our behalf. And Ted was more than willing to let me rise up and try to do a little more than my fair share. And the logic behind it was no more complicated than that. I had never served in wartime. The Vietnam War, I'm 61, Ed. I was born in 1958. So by the time I was 16, 17, 18 years of age, a young man that might have found a way to the military, a way to contribute to the country, the Vietnam War was a very recent, very fresh, very ugly memory. When I was a young man growing up, nobody enlisted in the military. It was an, Vietnam was an ugly memory in, in 1976 and 78, right out when I was out of high school. Yep. The war was over, but not long ago. And, and so I found satisfaction in being a public servant through my work for the United States Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Park Service. But when I moved to the private sector in the conservation arena with Ted so many years ago, I still felt a, a, a desire to serve, my, to serve my community, to serve something bigger than myself. M- my wife was very supportive. Uh, my children benefited mightily. They understand in this country it is a cop-out to conclude the most important thing you as a citizen can do is vote. That's not true. If Pardon my language. That's a bullshit claim. Mm-hmm. Most important thing you can do in this country is cast an informed vote. That's a hard thing to do. That That's great. I love hearing that. And an, another kind of personal question. It seems like, from my perspective here, that you're extremely mission-driven, and you're not going to do work unless it's benefiting a cause greater than yourself. I mean, even what you, you know, your awareness of the military in Vietnam and, you know, it, service just continues to, to come up. And 
Where did that mindset come from? Were your parents service oriented or, or, you know, have you, I get, you know, it sounds like for your whole career, you've been that way. Is that always been an important part of your life? Uh, it has been for me, but, but not, not necessarily because of what my parents did. My mother was a secretary for the local school district for many years and went back and got her degrees after her three sons were old enough to be, uh, you know, out, out of grade school. Fundamentally, she started going to night school and and finished both an undergraduate master's degree and was a very important social worker in town. But uh, my sensibilities had already been fixed by the time my mother rose up and became the great servant that she was. My father was a used car salesman. Mm-hmm. Uh, his service was in the form, and this is probably where it all came from for me. You're going to find this really funny because it's so very simple. Uh, my father was the was the quintessential baseball coach. Yep. And that's all we did growing up was play ball. And all the kids knew my dad. He was a great coach. He helped them all. We had all kinds of teams. And, and that's what we did for, for until I was 18, 19 years of age. Yeah, the hell, I was going to be a professional baseball player. Uh, but I wasn't my brothers. My brothers were gifted right out of the gate, big, strong kids that could hit and could pitch. And they'd just show up, and they were a rock star. In contrast, I had to work my tail off. Yep. And, and uh, 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 what the good Lord gave me was a tremendous ability to practice. I could practice better than anybody. Boy, I could practice <laughs> 25 hours a day. But I realized even at, uh, when I was playing baseball at my best level, I had to help manufacture runs. I was never a home run hitter. I could never change things quickly. I had to change thing, things by helping everybody rise up. Everybody rise up. Uh, and if I could be... Uh, the, the spark plug that helped people rise up, then that was good for the team. And when you look at my baseball career, I was all over the diamond, all over the diamond. Third base, shortstop, pitch, catch, the outfield. The only position I never really played consistently was first base because I'm not very tall. But my father had helped me come to learn early on. It doesn't matter where the coach needs you. You go and do the best you can because that's what the team requires. I think I developed my sense of service by being a singles hitter and a smart base runner. No more complicated than that. That's I mean, there's no, there's no glamorous way around it. You know, when you talk to super successful people, I think that that ability to just grind it out time after time after time. And you look at Ted Turner, I mean, it's the same thing. He, he's obviously smart, talented guy, but his ability to work harder than anybody else is you know one of the 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 aspects that's led to his success and when you think about the goals that you've set and that your organization has set there's no easy fix it's a damn grind and it's going to be for a really long time and i think embracing that is is hard for people to do because it's is so overwhelming but I, I i really admire it um back to the politics one more thing the, on that. the only thing I, let me, uh, the only thing i would yeah. add, the only thing i'd add to that ed uh, is uh, I, I i believe hard work matters especially among the very talented there, there's there's always a lot of talented people what separates the talented from the talented is how well are how hard are some willing to work and then this unique characteristic that not all talented people have and that is the ability to see around the next corner early mm. can you see something that somebody else hasn't quite seen yet and as it relates to the Turner Endangered Species Fund, and, and not to toot my own horn, but it's just an example of seeing around a corner. Uh, those two little wolves that I talked to you about that yep. drew my attention to the role of private land, 
back in the day, nearly now a quarter century ago, there was nobody really trying to push out and say fundamentally to people of high net worth, your private land holdings can make a difference saving creation. That was a corner that Ted and I peeked around early. And I think being able to see an oncoming trend before other people see it is a unique but essential uh, a skill. And I'm, I'm so glad to, you know, that you're talking so much about private land because obviously public land is getting a lot of attention these days. But my day-to-day work is in private land conservation. Before that, I was I was in the private land real estate business. And I think that's a, a point that needs to be driven driven home over and over is, yes, public lands are, are extremely important. But let's not, let's not forget about private lands because there's a lot of opportunity there. Well, I think the Turner Endangered Species Fund has made clear that you could not be more right. Uh, now, I'll, I'll be fair because that's important. Uh, our story really does speak to individuals with high net worth that hold large private holdings. Uh, uh, there are organizations that do beautiful backyard work. Backyards can matter, too. Small pollinator gardens can matter, for example. And you can have a small pollinator garden in your small backyard. But when you begin to speak about some of the bigger issues that we wrestle with, the extinction crisis, for example, uh, quite often the species involved require big landscapes. And I do think there is a world of good fortune that people are not yet adequately sharing with non-human life. I hold human life in high regard. don't, Don't get me wrong, but there are countless voices that, that speak on behalf of the non-human world that we're not paying sufficient attention to. And the best way to view it is the extinction crisis. To put that in perspective, Ed, across the long sweep of time that this planet has supported multicellular life, and that would go back, oh, gee whiz, let's say six, seven, eight hundred million years mm-hmm. that the planet has supported multicellular life. Up until a few thousand years ago, there had only been five massive extinction crises. The most recent one was about 65 million years ago and was almost certainly precipitated by uh, the asteroid slamming into the planet off the coast of what is now the Yucatan Peninsula and ended the reign of dinosaurs. The sixth great extinction crisis has been with us for quite some time, uh, several hundred years if not a couple thousand, and it is precipitated by humankind's activities. We are the slamming meteor of 65 million years ago. And, and, and consequently, what we are doing is destroying creation. If you're a person of faith, if you're a person of faith, the extinction crisis should matter. How can you love the creator and not love the creation? And, and if you love something, how can you stand by and watch it needlessly destroyed. Or take the flip side of that. Let's assume that you're a secular humanist, and you believe that uh, above all else, it's facts and data and logic and empiricism that matter, not faith, but facts that matter. Well, facts are the fate of humankind has always been decided by the health of local landscapes the world over. The, The point is that no matter who you are, the extinction crisis should matter. And it does not get nearly the attention that is due. 
man, you got me sold. I want to come work for you. Can I come work for you? I'm all, I'm all fired up now. <laughs> <laughs> when you have a job opening, well, let me, let me, don't tell anybody else. Just tell me and I'll, I'll come up there. And... <laughs> I wish, I wish, I wish the story was very different. I wish that I had effectively worked myself out of a job, but Ted and I, and, and please also note Ted's family is deeply committed. Uh, Ted and I found a resonance. That's true. Now, but I quickly found the same connection to his grown children. Teddy and Laura, Rhett, Jenny, Bo, are all beautiful people deeply committed to the life around us. It's not just Ted. It's his family. And, and uh, we have a future that we're determined to see come to fruition. And it, it's a future that will extend across decades and decades. His grandkids are deeply talented people. It is a family of the finest kind. Yeah, I've been a big fan of of him and the work that his family and that you and that every, you know all all of the the things that he has funded is just uh, it's just wonderful work. But you know whether whether people agree with it or not or, or, or want to argue with it or not, you have to admire his his benevolence and his generosity with the money. I mean, it's there are a lot of billionaires out there, and I've used to work with a good number of them selling ranches and. He's he's a rare breed in his generosity. Um, it's it's really amazing and it's inspiring. Um, I, I I want to be respectful of your time, and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with everything you have going on. I've got some quick questions that I like to end the the conversations with, and it's been fun to kind of compare and contrast these the answers to these questions among all the the guests that I've had. So can we run through those real quick? Then I'll, I'll let you get back to sure. it. Normally I ask, what's your favorite book about the American West? But I, I'm actually more curious if, if you had to name one or two or three books about wolves or endangered species in general, are there any books that come to mind that you think the listeners would, would benefit by reading? Sure. I, uh, one that is just a, a delight. Now, I admit my bias. Uh, it's a friend of mine. But years ago, David Quammen, Q-U-A-M-M-E-N, David Quammen wrote a book entitled Song of the Dodo. Yes. Uh, it's a fantastic book about island biogeography and the extinction crisis. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert wrote more recently a book about the extinction crisis. I think it's just titled The Great Extinction. Uh, but I would start with Quammen's Song of the Dodo. And, and I would also recommend, because I'm fascinated by the fact that we live largely in a world of ecological illiteracy, and that does not serve us well. You know, most folks don't know that 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 uh, energy flows and nutrient cycle. That, that they, they just don't get the basics of ecology, and yet it defines the life that we see around us. There's a very important book, especially for Coloradans or anyone living in the Rocky Mountain West, uh, written years ago. It's actually uh, it was a book, a, a report to Congress, uh, written uh, by John Wesley Powell, Gen- General Powell. P-O-W-E-L-L, General Powell wrote a book in, or a report entitled A Report on the Lands of the Arid Region of the United States. Mm-hmm. A Report on the Lands of the Arid Region of the United States. It's a long report. The most important part of it, in my estimation, is back in the day, the 1800s, when Powell wrote this book, uh, I believe it was 1878 or thereabouts, he argued that the boundaries of the western states should be situated against watershed boundaries. Uh, rather than adopting just straight lines that started and stopped at some arbitrary point of convenience, uh, we should be mindful, especially in arid lands, that water is king, and consequently our political subdivisions should be based on the king of all concepts. 
and that's the watershed. Um, and then finally, because he's just a delightful conservation poet, uh, Wallace Stegner's book, uh, Wallace Stegner's just good all the way around, but The American West is Living Space is a fantastic offering by Wallace Stegner. Those are all great. I'll have notes to all those people can click through. Do you have any films or documentaries that have been impactful to your thinking as a, as a conservationist or just as a, as an ecologist? Yeah. And the title is going to, you're going to find this funny. It was a, an Academy award winning documentary of many years ago, uh, entitled if memory serves, uh, the fog of war. Oh yeah. The fog of war. It's a documentary, uh, about secretary McNamara and the, uh, world war two and, uh, the, the, uh, the Vietnam war. And, and I think the fog of war is important because it illustrates uh, how often we move forward incorrectly because of incomplete information. Now, I admit a bias to uh, my farewell speech to the Montana Senate uh, was admitting that the biggest mistake I ever made as a state senator, and it was a biggish mistake, uh, the mistake was based on the simple fact that I had gotten seduced by what I thought I knew. Mm-hmm. But upon further reflection, uh, I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. But because I was so seduced by it, I was deaf to hearing what other people had to say. And I came to learn that it's all well and good to know what you know, but you have to have enough sense to stop and listen and do your best to try to figure out what somebody else knows. It may be important, more important than what you think you know. To some extent, I think the fog of war drove that point home, too. Yeah, people have mentioned that before, and I've yet to watch it. And so I need to, God, I need to make myself watch it because I, I continue to hear such it, great things about it. It's worth watching. Yeah, I'll check that and it out. It does connect to conservation, but in a roundabout way. I love stuff like that. Um, where is your favorite location in the West? I mean, you've been to some spectacular places, Ted Turner's Ranch being one of them. Are there, is there a specific uh, top of a mountain, trailhead, lake, uh, town, just anywhere that sticks out as your favorite spot in the West? Yeah, the Rose Creek Acclimation Pen. Uh, we built several acclimation pens for gray wolves in Yellowstone National Park. But the one that has always held a special appeal to me because of the wonderful experiences I had there is the Rose Creek Acclimation Pen. Anybody can go to it. It's not hard to get to. It only takes about a, maybe a two-mile walk up a delightful little creek, not surprisingly called Rose Creek. Uh, you get to it by parking at the Lamar Ranger Station in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone National Park. And if you're standing there at the Lamar Ranger Station and you're looking north, you're looking north, off to your left, off to the west, not far away, maybe 30, 40, 50 yards away, you'll notice this little babbling creek. That's Rose Creek. You just follow that creek up about two miles, about a mile and a half. It splits, and there's an eastern and western fork. Track the western fork, and you'll stumble into the Rose Creek Acclimation Pen. That's my favorite spot. I will probably ask my wife to leave part of me there when I pass this world. I'll be up in Montana this summer and uh, hoping to, to get over there. So I, I'll try to check that out. That sounds that sounds great. Um, so oh, it's fantastic. Now hike carefully. It's good grizzly bear country. So you you know you don't don't want to be too quiet. Keep your eyes open. There's almost always a lone bull bison or two up there. And so if you pop over a little 
a little rise and there's a bison wallow 10 feet away and a big bull's in it, you, you just you know, walk with your eyes open. That's all. I used to live in Jackson Hole, so I learned the hard way. You got to be really, really aware of your surroundings. Yeah, just keep an eye on things and, you know, keep a view shed in front of you. So last big question, um, and I'm excited to hear your answer to this. So if you, the people who listen to this podcast, they love the American West in one way or the other, whether that's through conservation or athletics or art or ranching or you know, full full range of, of people. And so if you could make a request of those people or ask, ask them to do something, um, offer some words of wisdom from all your years working in the West, do, does anything come to mind or request you would make of these folks? That's an interesting question. Yeah, you know, it would probably be if you can still hear something that's human-based, if you can still hear a car or you can still hear someone, you haven't gone far enough. And I think if people come to value solitude more, maybe we'll all slow down a bit and be able to more effectively respond to the challenges in front of us. I think we get... We get uh, we get overwhelmed with just the noise of life and, and consequently sometimes struggle to know how best to go forward. You know, if you have, if you, if you can still hear stuff, you haven't gone far enough, find a piece of quiet ground and then ask yourself, what can you do to help with uh, the problems confronting the planet? And two immediately come to mind that we, we have to start thinking about non-human life because as it goes, eventually, so we will go. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not worried about humanity going extinct. For heaven's sakes, we're the weediest species the planet's ever known. <laughs> but what will happen is that more and more and more and more people will live lives of desperation and despair, lives not worth living. Uh, and that's not a good thing. And then if you can find a quiet piece of ground, I would ask folks to recognize the importance of putting a price on carbon Climate change is going to blow this place up. It's going to create uh, civic unrest, the likes of which the world has never seen. Desperate people do desperate things. An increasingly warm climate is going to create a, a volume of environmental refugees like you cannot believe. The quickest solution going forward is to let the marketplace help govern our collective activities. The only way the marketplace can do that as it relates to fuel use is to put a price on carbon. And at a fundamental level, I would ar- I would argue that a price on carbon is simply just paying your fair share. Great advice. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've got so much going on on so many fronts, and this was I- I've wanted to talk to you for, for years, and so this podcast gave me a way to sneak in and have the conversation I've wanted to have for so long. So thank you so much for everything you're doing and for your team's work and for Mr. Turner's work, and um, just, just keep up the great work. I hope to meet, meet you in person one of these days. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. 
The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.